Welcome to Interchange. I'm your host, Zach Anderson Pettit. Interchange was founded inside of Bond, the embedded finance company. This podcast is a place for conversation, questioning, and open learning about the future of embedded finance. We have something special for you today. At Bond, we do a monthly speaker series where we bring in legendary leaders to speak with the entire Bond team about their experiences. We've been graced with the presence of Dan Rose of Facebook and Amazon fame, Sherry Heyman of MasterCard, and today we have a very special guest, Rob Curtis, CEO at Daylight, who is kind enough to let us open source our learnings with the Interchange community. You'll hear a new voice doing the interviewing in this interchange, our very own VP of Marketing, Brian Chevalier Jordan. The first voice that you'll hear is Rob from Daylight, giving us a bit of background on himself. I hope you enjoy this very special interchange. I grew up in Australia, um, spent 15 years in London, focusing on consulting in financial services, uh, banking insurance. I spent time implementing Temenos banking platforms. I rolled out internet banks, you name it. Um, and I didn't really love working in a corporate environment, to be really honest. Um, it sucks being the gay guy who has to, on Monday mornings, look up what straight people did on the weekend so that you can pretend to be straight for the rest of the week. Um, and I think that was an experience that, um, I was living and breathing day to day. Um, and, uh, fast forward to 2017 and I'll, and I'm going to get real in some of these conversations. I was, um, I was groped by a woman in the workplace. Um, and when I flagged that senior management, they laughed about it because I was a man, um, and a gay man and that's fine for people like you. Uh, so I quit. Um, and around that time I'd done some personal advocacy and I'd been invited into do a turnaround on a, on a 20 year old company called Gator, which was really one of the first ways that queer people could connect online. Um, and while I was there doing a turnaround, I sat in what was a kink chat room, um, listening to people talk about where they got their curtains from, how they manage their healthcare where they, how they deal with money and suddenly realize that there's a whole bunch of queer folk out there who are turning to each other for advice because the wider financial services industry, healthcare industry, hadn't thought about how to tailor services to us. So being an entrepreneurial guy, uh, I then started a series of LGBT consumer companies. Um, and uh, my last one was a two-sided um, uh, marketplace for LGBT folks to find a therapist that they don't need to explain what bottoming is. Um, and uh, then at the beginning of the year, uh, last year, was approached by an investor to build um, a bank for LGBT folks as one of the few LGBT founders who builds for our community. It's a bit of a long-winded way of saying I'd spent some time in kind of the banking and finance world. I even spent time as an auditor, so I'm pretty familiar with regs. Um, and realized that the companies that were were being built, weren't serving my community. And they weren't even really places that I wanted to work. And so Daylight is an opportunity for me to build the kind of company that I'd like to see that empowers my community to do things for itself. Um, and that's kind of how I got into FinTech land. Um, as you might've seen last week, we had our, our funding announcement um, published in TechCrunch. So that's been uh, quite a journey for us. And we've gone from that usual moment of 
not enough money to not enough people uh, in the space of about five minutes. Um, but uh, having a great time and really happy to be here. Mainstream banks have been talking about offering specific services for the LGBTQ community for well, at least since the 1990s, because I remember having some of these conversations with people. But they they determined there was really no market need. Now, whether they were right or wrong, I don't know, but you do. So what what do you think they got wrong? Why hasn't why haven't you seen something like this before? All of those people probably knew a white gay guy and looked at him and did, thought he was doing pretty all right because the people in that person's, in those people's um, communities were probably just like them working in banking and investment. Um, and I think um, what we know about the queer community is just that, that doesn't, people like me don't represent the whole community. We don't even represent necessarily the majority of it. Um, what we do know is, is that there are about 30 million LGBT Americans so if we put us all into the one state, it would not only be a great party, but it would be the second largest state behind California. And if you combine our spending power, we spend about a trillion dollars a year, which is almost the GDP of Mexico. If you take a, a state, you'll notice that they have banks that serve that community. Um, and the LGBT community, by virtue of biology, we're born into a bunch of straight families. So the first place that we go to connect with our community these days is online or to community centers or bars. And what we know from living and breathing in this market is, is that there's not only a really large and growing segment of people that are wealthy, um, but there's also a growing segment of people that are really underserved. And so when we did our market analysis, we found actually that there is a huge opportunity for to build a profitable business. But I think... Um, most of the people that looked at this question looked at it five, 10 years ago. Um, and technology has grown. Um, our understanding of the LGBT community has grown because you know, most people don't know very much about us at all. So I'd say what, we're in a time and place where we can access better data, even though it's still pretty patchy. Um, we have increased social and legal recognition. So um, that means that it's easier to get partners on board. It's easy to get investors on board. But I'm still only 10% as likely to be funded as a gay man um, seeking venture capital. Um, but fundamentally, I know lots and lots and lots and lots of queer people out there that are struggling with money, that need bespoke advice. And I think we've reached a point where 61% of millennial queers want to have families, and there's a $20 billion savings shortfall. So anyone that didn't think that a $20 billion industry was worth going for, that's just for one set of um, life events for our community, uh, kind of missed the point. Um, and I think what people get wrong about our community is that they think we're a monolith. They think we're all the same. And I think the best way of splitting us up is lesbians, gays, bisexual, transgender, and the rest of the alphabet. Um, in practice, actually, when you look at detailed segmentation of our community, we're really, really different in lots of different ways, and particularly around the intersection of our LGBT status and other parts of our identity, like our ethnicity, like where we were born, red states, blue states, all sorts of things like that. So I think they lack the data they lack the tenacity to try hard enough to find a business case for it. And I think the world wasn't ready. Have you introduced features that are, that are unique that are not seen in mainstream banks? Let me tell you about the financial life of LGBT folks. What I know about a 14-year-old queer person is they need to be saving for college. And the reason for that is really simple. When they come out to their parents, there's a 40% chance they'll no longer receive financial support. Um, so young people, 17, 18 years old, going to college without parental support, um, are coming out of college and our community, therefore, um, as a result, has about 50% more college debt than on average. Um, we then come out of college. Um, we suddenly find we've got different sexual health costs. We've got different healthcare costs. LGBT folks are three to five times more likely to suffer from common mental health problems like anxiety and depression. So we have to engage with healthcare services differently. Um, and if you're a trans person, um, a transition can cost you hundreds 
more than $100,000, depending on what that transition means to you. Not only is there no education for young queer people about money, um, there's no real understanding in the industry that these things existed. And I think before November, when we started really ringing the bell about the lived experience of queer folk in finance, I don't think the industry even thought that we were anything more than a marketing segment. Um, and really where the crunch point comes is in our 30s. This is when doors start to close for us. A scenario that will affect many people is we'll be asked to prioritize one out of the following three things. Do you want a home? Do you want a family? Or do you want a gender transition? And if you're a Gen Z, you know, maybe you can have one of those three things. Getting two or three of those things is really, really challenging for our community because actually many of the things that y'all take for granted are harder for us. Being comfortable in one's body is costly if you're a trans person. Um, having gender-affirming surgery, as I said before, is expensive. Getting a down payment on a home is a challenge for anybody. And if you want to start a family, like those 61% of millennials, the average cost per child is $55,000. In our 30s, through a lack of preparation, through a lack of advice and products designed for us, already our life choices are becoming significantly diminished. Um, and it doesn't stop there. Long-term outcomes for our community, we are significantly less likely to own a home. We are more significantly more likely to run out of money during retirement. And even just day-to-day -day things like we spend the same level of discretionary income as a proportion of our overall income as everybody else. And you are 20% less likely to be able to, to have a savings product, a mutual aid fund, anything like that. So really what we find is, is that um, LGBT folk need bespoke education. We need different types of services. I don't want to be asked what my wife does ever again. I think it's dumb. It's 2021. I'm sick of being assumed as a straight guy. We take a trans person. Um, they need a card in their name, not whatever their parents put on their legal ID. They need a card that is going to make them safe at the point of sale. Because if you look like Sarah and you present a card that says Trevor on it, 40% of folks in that situation are subjected to threats of violence, threats of criminality and refusal of service. And so actually what we've been doing is being deeply intentional through our design process to look at where these gaps are, taking into account not only those, that data that I presented on the macro picture for our community, but getting in deep with individuals about the stories that they tell and building services that are designed with queer people at the center. And I think what's different is banking at the moment doesn't put us in the center at all, except when it comes to Pride Month and except sometimes in marketing. We're serving sometimes many of similar products or the same kinds of products. We're just helping our community navigate through the financial landscape differently, um, tailoring those products to our, our consumer need and making it fun. I mean, one of our tools that we're re releasing later in the year is called Walk the Walk. We're going to tell people how queer-friendly their spending is because if you shop at Pizza Hut, 80% of their corporate PAC donations went to Republicans and those are the folks that are diminishing our rights. So we can then empower users at a merchant level to march with their feet towards businesses that are not only saying that they're doing the right thing, but are actually doing the right thing. Very much we see Daylight as the next generation of the LGBT movement, which is not just going to focus on visibility, legal recognition and social recognition, but needs to close the LGBT wealth gap, which is significant for our community. So we are looking at this as a macro level at a deeply personal level and the services that we provide are designed to tackle those things one by one. Can we dig into that a little bit? Obviously, having a form that is is um, you know speaking to you appropriately is makes sense. Like instead of asking for your wife, ask for your partner or spouse or something like that makes sense. Is there anything else that you had to sort of re envision? Yeah, KYC. 
Let's start at the beginning. KYC flags trans people with a higher rate of false positives than um, non-trans people because we've gotten used to the idea that people can change their last name when they get married, which is culturally important for many women and many families. When a person changes their first name and their gender marker, what do we do with that? Suddenly we're in a twin edge case. And so from a service perspective, that can push somebody out of a 20-minute SLA into a 72-hour queue. And so right from the beginning of onboarding a customer, we're encountering areas where the financial services systems landscape has been designed without thinking about the, the changing needs um, or even the needs of this community. These, these needs aren't changing. Trans people have been here the whole time. We're just taking them more seriously in the last 10 years because we've been forced to. And so we start with KYC. We then go straight into card issuance. Okay, let's get them... Let's provide somebody with a card that has their name that's different from their legal ID. Panic stations. What about all of this fraud? Um, there are no known cases of straight men pretending to be trans women to commit crime using a card in a different name. So... We've gone through KYC. Our next hurdle is card issuance. We're having to dispel with regulators, with sponsor banks, with platform providers that actually there doesn't need to be a legitimate match of uh, legal ID to the name presented on a card because not even Visa requires a card to match um, as a network provider. So we've had to then tailor the next level of our services and the customer hasn't even received the card yet. Fundamentally, there's no reason why... Um, we shouldn't be hyper-focused on speaking to our community in a language that they understand, within a cultural context that they understand, um, but appreciating that, you know, a joint account isn't going to cut it anymore. You know, non-monogamy is here. Open relationships are here in our community. Um, the family models that we build over the next 20, 30 years aren't going to look the same as, as the nuclear family. And so what we are, we see ourselves at, the beginning of a journey of tailoring services towards entirely new family models that I think the LGBT community will pioneer because we've been doing that for a long time. Tell me about what the LGBT community's response has been and, and what is the most surprising response that you've seen? At a philosophical level, we have incredibly strong engagement with the idea that there is a bank built by and for LGBT. But sitting alongside that is a real mistrust for institutions in general, which is fair for a community that's been marginalized for a long time. And in particular, a real cynicism about any financial services. We've just come out of yet another Pride season where top of mind in a lot of the analysis of Pride is the over-corporatization and the under-support for the community that coexists. And so I think if you look, once we get past this idea that actually we're not just a cynical marketing employee and we're, and we're tailoring for our community and we're building services, our community has never seen something like this before. And so we have some cynicism to overcome there. And then I think the older you get and the wealthier you get, the less relevant some of these services are because um, you'll have paid through your pain points. When we talk to young people, though, we get a really different response. Not only are Gen Z and millennials really purpose-focused, and they, they instantly align with the fact that we are trying to close the LGBT wealth gap as part of our, our philosophy and, and our purpose. At a macro picture, um, it's been really positive. We've been invested in by Gangels, um, who is an LGBT um, angel group. So they joined us on the syndicate. But actually, we found that a um, um, majority of our investors came from fintech VCs, impact VCs that had a really strong focus on diversity. Yeah, it's been great. It's been really, really fun. 
Yeah. And the press has been really positive too, which, uh, you know, surprised me given that, you know, there's there, like you said, there are so many other community banks out there, uh, but the, the press has been very, very favorable towards you. Did you expect that? Did you think that it would be harder to get coverage? Did you think the coverage would be more negative? We had one rule on launch day. It was 18th of November last year. We repositioned and rebranded. Um, and we started a PR blitz and we did that because actually fundraising for us was very slow. As I said before, 10% of gay men are funded for every 10, you know, so we're, 10, we're funded 10% as often. So actually we have to do more to get VC funds. Um, and our golden rule for the day was don't get canceled because we didn't know, we didn't know how the media was going to take us. We didn't know how our community was going to take us. We knew in t- internally we were doing the right thing and we were really intentionally designing things in a way that we were proud of, but we weren't sure the investor interest up until that point had been lukewarm at best, but what I think surprised the media and surprised um, financial services companies is that we were telling a data story that people just had never heard before. Um, and there's not the idea of a queer bank is not that new. People have been thinking about it for years. There've been attempts at trying to build credit unions and other things like that. So people have thought about building banking services in a tailored way. But I think there was a real sense that queer folk were doing just fine and we didn't really have to worry about their lives because we were we just assumed that they were all two incomes, no kids, doing great. And actually we we told a really different story in a way that wasn't leaning into victim mentality. It was leaning into empowerment and we're saying there's a trillion dollars on the table here. You're not serving this community well enough. And there's a lot of us, if you're not going to do it, I mean, company banks clearly aren't going to get there, then we're going to do it. And I think that's that fighting spirit alongside a really compelling data story and a human story. We have one other question from the community that I'm going to ask, because I think the other ones were, were mostly um, asked already which is what was the most difficult thing you had to build at daylight? Belief amongst the venture capital community that they should invest in people like us. Building tools is fine if you've got an intentional design process. Um, None of this stuff is rocket science. Um, Building a coalition of folks that believe that LGBT people are valuable and worthy of bespoke services was really tough. Um, not only was I a stranger, they'd never met me. They were looking for pattern matching. They're like, well, where are all these other successful queer businesses? We're like, well, you haven't, in- how many have you invested in? Like, well, we've never invested in any cause we've never seen any good ones. And I'm like, well, this is a chicken and egg situation. Um, and so actually the way that we articulate the problem statement, the way we articulate the market opportunity here was a lot about building confidence amongst the investor community to stretch their imagination beyond LGBT folks as being, what all of the other gay white guys in VC look like um, to be able to educate them that the community is diverse. And I think, um, frankly, the way we did that was we courted the media. Um, so Brian, that media attention that we got was a very deliberate strategy for us to improve our fundraising because once VCs aren't the most imaginative folk in the world, they'll admit it. I mean, to get my first check in took me eight months of fundraising I closed half a million dollars in 12 hours at the later stage of the fundraising. And I think you just need that first domino to fall. Um, and so knowing that we had a 90% lot lower chance as an LGBT person in general, and then applying over the top of that, a lack of any pattern matching for LGBT businesses aside from Grindr that were big enough to be worth investing in meant that we probably had to try a hundred times harder than anybody else. Um, and so that was the hardest thing that we had to build. Once we achieved that though, now it's usual startup growing pains. I really want to uh, just thank you so much. Thank, thank you everyone for having me. Um, it's always great to be able to advocate for our community and tell a nice story. Uh, I've really appreciated the warm welcome. 
I hope you enjoyed this very special interchange with Rob Curtis. Interchange was founded inside a bond to benefit the developers, product owners, and executives at brands working inside the next generation of financial services. We hope that you're learning, enjoying, and maybe even laughing along. We love this world and we're passionate about every piece of it. Let us know what you'd like to learn more about, who you'd like to hear from, and what's getting you out of bed in the morning in this wild world of fintech in which we live. If you'd like to learn more about Bond, please reach out. You can get a hold of me at Zach at Bond.tech. Let's start a conversation. Check out the show notes and the Bond blog for a deeper dive if you're still listening and just can't get enough. And lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and a rating in your favorite podcast app. Until our next interchange. <laughs>